Oh, hello everyone. Yes, I see. How nice. Thank you. <clears throat> the greetings make me remind me of this. <clears throat> uh, Buddhist monk who used to come to Spirit Rock and he was, a lot of people would go gather for his day long retreats and they'd all be waiting for him in the meditation hall and expectant and quiet, meditating, maybe a bit serious. And uh, <clears throat> there was a kind of a little clearing in the middle of an aisle, walk up to the front where he was gonna sit. He didn't speak much English but uh, when he'd enter the room at least once, you see everyone there and he's walking through the crowd of people sitting and he says in English, happy, happy, happy. <laughs> That's how he started. And I think that broke a certain trance in people's minds about taking Buddhism too seriously. And, um, There's a quote that our retreat center, uh, the retreats, Insight Retreat Center from attributed to Suzuki Roshi, a Zen teacher, that goes something like this. Um, our life is too important to take seriously. Or our practice is too important to take seriously. And I think the idea here is that, you know, we, we, you know, our life is serious, certainly. I wouldn't want to unserious any of your lives. But to take it too seriously, dampen something, undermine something, limit something, the very thing that's important is a little bit deflated or lost or shut down when we take it too seriously. So, Today, we're gonna to look at suffering, discuss suffering. And I hope we don't take this suffering thing too seriously. But I do hope we take it sincerely, <clears throat> that we look at it sincerely, that we see it as important part of our lives. But it'd be nice if we didn't get too serious about it. So we'll see how we do, how I do. There was a, another uh, quote attributed to the same Zen teacher, Shinryo Suzuki Roshi. He was the founder of San Francisco Zen Center. A friend of mine who was a student of his back then <clears throat> asked him, um, if I do Zen practice, will I become enlightened? And Suzuki Roshi answered, if your practice is sincere, it's almost as good. I love that answer. If your practice is sincere, it's almost as good as becoming enlightened. Something about how we practice, how we engage in practice, 
how we put our hearts into it, this path, how we <clears throat> dedicate ourselves in a heartfelt, warm-hearted, dedication, devotion, that is pretty marvelous, pretty wonderful. In uh, some schools of Zen, that in Buddhism, they also have this idea that um, we are not getting enlightened in some big, bang experience that we're all, you know, waiting for. And is it happening yet? Like kids in the car, we're telling the parents, are we there yet? Are we there yet? But rather that um, we practice in a way that contains some of the elements of awakening. that we practice in a way where the means, the practice, uh, that the goal is found in the means. The goal is found in how we practice. And then we practice and the goal grows inside of us. And as we grow, develop, we become like a wonderful, powerful, wise, peaceful snake that from time to time will shed its skin, will shed its attachments and its clinging and all kinds of things. And how does the practice contain part of the goal? The goal is most commonly described by the Buddha in the ancient texts as the ending of greed, hatred, and delusion. Or sometimes it's described as the, as the absence of clinging. Sometimes it's described as peaceful. Sometimes it's described as safety. Sometimes it's described as happy. The two emotional states that most are used to describe the goal of awakening is peace and happiness. So as we practice, can we then start practicing with some of those qualities? Can we start practicing with less greed, with less hatred, we can't maybe stop it entirely at the beginning. Less delusion. Can we practice with less clinging? Can we practice with some peace? Maybe even with some happiness. We're allowed to be happy. Isn't that remarkable? Maybe for some of you, it's not remarkable, but there are people who grow up in religious traditions, cultures, something where things are serious, always serious, strictly serious, seriously strict. And 
joy and happiness is kind of frowned upon. Suffering is extolled. And I've had the, I feel like the great, I don't know, privilege of letting some people know, practitioners know that it was okay to be happy. They would start feeling some joy in meditation and they felt something was that like they didn't deserve it or that somehow it was a, somehow wrong. So to practice with some of the goal in how we practice. So if we're greedy for awakening, greedy for states of meditation, then we're infusing the practice with the opposite of what the practice is about. If we infuse the practice with hostility, we're bringing into the practice what the whole practice is supposed to free us from. And I've certainly sat with hostility and greed in my meditation practicing. I've had a fair amount of hostility to my meditation cushion because it gets to be like cement after a while, even though it started off being soft. Like, boy, is this... Or sometimes I've had it for the people sitting near me. Believe it or not, the closest I ever got to punching someone out in my adult life was someone sitting next to me in the meditation hall. And that's a whole story that uh, <clears throat> had to do with monastic life. I was a monk then. And um, so, um, so we can track ourselves. Part of the function of mindfulness practice is not just to be mindful of the moment, but to be mindful enough to track, are we acting from wholesome tendencies or unwholesome tendencies, from skillful or unskillful? And to make it simple, if it maybe it's been simple, are we acting with greed, hatred, and delusion? Are we acting with clinging? Or are we acting with non-clinging, non-greed, non-hatred? Sooner or later in this Vipassana practice, that's part of what we're keeping an eye on. And with time, we, we start recognizing and feeling and knowing earlier and earlier, the signs that now there's clinging, now there's some attachment, some aversion. And one of the reasons we know it earlier, there's a number of reasons. One is because there's a heightened sensitivity to our body, heightened sensitivity to the mental activities, our hearts. And clinging always hurts. It's always stressful. It's always, clinging is always involves some kind of pain or suffering. And so as we get more sensitive, we feel the cost of these things. And we ha it has the ouch factor. And so then, oh, this doesn't work. This is in the wrong direction. Other ways of practicing have a little bit more of the ah factor. This is good. This feels nourishing, it feels healthy. And then we might want to cl cling to the ah, the good. 
but then we back to ouch. So to be, so we become our own barometer for this, our own sensitive instrument. We start feeling this, and then it becomes almost like they say that you know, we automatically take our hands off the hot stove. It becomes almost that automatic. It's like, of course you don't put your hand on the hot stove. Of course you don't pick up hatred. You kind of, you because you you feel the physical, mental pain that comes for doing it. But this is a long way of of driving, trying to drive home this point that to infuse the practice with elements of the goal, and then slowly those elements grow and grow and grow until we're enlightened or the next best thing. And this is particularly important when it becomes time to really be present for the depth of suffering in the human heart. And I feel kind of tender talking about this topic today, suffering, because it can be very deep in the heart and in all of us the ways we've been hurt by the world, the ways we've been frightened by the world, the ways we've been wounded. And that sits in some deep way that is even painful to even get close to and frightening and distressing and confusing and so, so deep and so spreading out into our lives and so many different tentacles. But fortunately, what is always deeper in our hearts, deeper in, in us, what's deeper than suffering always is peace and love. Suffering and this Buddhist analysis of it is always an activity of the mind, believe it or not. It's always something the mind, our mind is doing. And that's the good news. It means that we can undo, we can cease, stop doing the activities of the mind that brings on suffering. And the peace, especially with peace, but also with love, I believe, peace and love is not really an activity of the mind. Maybe it's a quality of the heart. So no matter how deep your suffering is, and I certainly would like to respect and care for that depth, there is a deeper place. peace and love. And one of the contributions the Buddha made to this study of suffering was he pointed out that suffering is a composite of many different elements, many different mental activities that come together to, to create this um, 
big ball. He actually sometimes one 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 sutta is called the big ball of yarn, or big tangle. The, the yarn has gotten all tangled up in itself. It's a big knotted head of yarn. And if it, and if you look at it like from the distance, look at it just as suffering. It just seem, can seem impenetrable. And if it's impenetrable, we can't find where the end of the yarn is so we can somehow pull it out or straighten it out or free it up from the tangle. And so he, he but he called it a composite. And I'm not gonna go into all the elements of the composite of all the pieces he said, but that in brief, it's the, those of you who know this, it's um, the uh, 12 steps of dependent origination. And um, so it's a composite. And so what happens as we start slowing down and start being mindful moment to moment of our experience, as we get more intimate with our experience and more slow down, more peaceful, more quiet, we start seeing some of the composite pieces. We start seeing the elements that we can't see in the ordinary life. We can't see if we're somehow blinded by the totality of the suffering. And one of the things we start seeing sooner or later is that in that composite, that ball of yarn, there is clinging, there's some grasping. There's something that some kind of uh, strong, intense, desire that we're caught in. So I hear some kind of background sound that seems to be coming from one of you. I don't know if one of you is, has your, your not, not, not muted. It would be good if everyone was muted but me. That seems good. So um, the, um, so, if you take for now the premise that inherent in all our suffering, the part that we contribute to it, because sometimes our, the, people, the people who contributed to it, the people who did terrible things to us, you know, that's, you know, they might not be doing that anymore. Hopefully they're not. But our contribution to it is the clinging part. So I'll, we'll do a little exercise, if you're willing to go along. If you could uh, make a fist, I don't want you to get hurt, so don't go too far, but I'd like you to make a really tight, hard fist, like you're holding on for dear life, or you're not gonna give this up. You, no one's gonna take this from you. Hold on, like really, some of you can probably do it better. Just like make sure every single finger is pulled in and tight. Now, I want you to keep it that way, okay, for a while. I'm going to tell you a story. This is about how you catch monkeys in India. Apparently, what you do is you take a coconut and you make a slot and scoop out the inside so there's a nice cavity in there. You put a candy in it. And then are you still holding tight? Did you light up a little bit? Be sure you don't light up. Okay. So then 
um, you put a candy and then you tie the coconut to a tree. Coconuts love, uh, monkeys love candy. So they come and they slip their, their hand in into the slot, but it's so narrow they get their hand in, but when they grab the candy, they make a little fist and they can't pull it out. And apparently monkeys don't want to give up on candy. And so they're stuck and the hunter just comes up, comes along and picks them up. So what are you holding on to? You can let go now. You can relax. What I hope some of you, some of you maybe are just too good at this, but what I'm hoping some of you realized is that in order to keep your hand all fisted up, you had to reassert effort. You had to keep doing it again and again. Did some of you find that we, the story was so captivating you forgot to grip? <laughs> the, it's kind of like inherent in the fist, tight fist, almost like it's the fists, the, 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 the deepest wish of the tight fist is to relax, to let go. The deepest wish of our suffering, our clinging, is for something to release and let go. And we're learning that process of release and letting go. And um, now it's one thing to say, just relax your hand, but that's hard to do. Sometimes what we need is to bring some of the qualities of I would say the awakened mind, qualities of love, of care, of compassion, of, a, of a, a presence, here to listen, here to accompany, to be present for our suffering. So if the fist doesn't want to open, sometimes what you need is something to come along and support it underneath, just gently. A soft, open hand of a friend maybe comes along to be with you. The kind presence of mindfulness comes and holds it. And I think of mindfulness sometimes as uh, from like two cupped hands that comes underneath our suffering and just holds it, supports it. So the fist doesn't want to let go, but when it's supported by the warm, soft support from underneath, it, it feels the support then some, that natural letting go that it wants to do begins to happen. And, some, and something begins to thaw, release, open up. That's a very different process than prying the fingers loose. If you're successful prying one loose, you have to kind of go after another one then, and the first one goes back. You know, it's a kind of a, sometimes a lost cause, this prying our suffering loose. But to hold it so something relaxes, lets go, patient, releasing. Some people don't want to let go. Some people don't know that they are clinging. They don't know how to find their clinging. Maybe you don't have to necessarily, whatever the suffering is, Begin by holding it kindly with a kind of presence where the suffering feels safe. 
maybe what your suffering most needs is safety. And if you're trying to get rid of it, it doesn't feel safe. If you're trying to fix it, it doesn't feel safe. If you're trying to psychoanalyze it, it probably doesn't feel safe. If you're trying to deny it, it doesn't feel safe. How do you help your suffering feel safe to be held where it has, it's allowed to be there? I think a few days ago I talked about building our capacity. We're also building our capacity to hold the magnitude of our suffering. Slowly, slowly, doesn't have to be fast. And then something begins to relax, soften. And what is it? But that could also be frightening or distressing because to relax, then what we're holding on to, we might, it might drop away. Might, we might let go of it. What's uh, really, I think, marvelous about these teachings of the Buddha he didn't talk about letting go of things. He talked about letting go of the grip. He talked about letting go of the clinging, the grasping. What we do with the things we're grasping to, that's a different topic. Some people are afraid if they're holding on to something, like I'm holding on to the striker, that letting go means that you just go like, you know, and drops and probably breaks something on the way down. Another way of letting go of the clinging is to go like that. Now the striker, I still have the striker, the bell striker. I haven't dropped it. I still have it, but there's no clinging, no grasping. To repeat myself, one of the marvelous things about the Buddha's teachings on non-clinging, about letting go, it's a very, very rare you find him telling you, telling people to let go of anything, an object or a person or anything. It's letting go of the clinging, the grasping. What happens to the object? You know, hopefully we have the wisdom to know and it doesn't mean we reject things or throw things away or don't have them. But if they're harmful, maybe we do drop them, put them away. So this process of learning to be with suffering. And so as I, one of the themes for this retreat is we're cultivating well-being. We're cultivating some of the qualities of awakening itself so that we increase our capacity and ability to be present for suffering in a nice way, in a good way. You're not expected to be present for suffering if how you're present for it makes it worse. But if you can learn the art, the skill 
of meeting the suffering with an open hand, kindly, without clinging, without hostility, without fear. If you learn to develop the capacity to offer safety to your suffering. And the, why that's so important is that suffering itself has in it the movement towards freedom, towards release, just like the fist does. You can trust that if you bring this careful, open, mindful attention to that. No matter what it is, suffering is always an activity that can be put to rest, that can stop. Suffering is not the deepest thing in you. It doesn't have to define you. It's not all of who you are. And you'll realize that all the strategies, many of the strategies we have around suffering, maybe they're ready, more ready than you realize to stop, to rest. That the ways in which we are protecting ourselves from a war that's long over, that protection wants to be free, wants to rest. The way that we've been avoiding some of the difficult unresolved feelings and issues. The avoidance wants to rest, wants to let go. The unresolved feelings themselves want to be free. Everything moves towards freedom. Everything moves to, towards awakening. That's one of the, there's a beautiful quote uh, teaching from Chinese Buddhism. In the sixth century or so, Buddhism had been in China for about 500 years. And the Chinese had a huge task to try to understand what eventually became a thousand years of teachings that came out of India, all kinds of different schools of Buddhism by that time. And they got it all, they had to kind of make sense of it all. And then there was this famous philosopher in the sixth century who wrote a big book on this. One of the first people who had this encyclopedic scope of all these teachings. And in the middle of this book, he gives the essence of what the Buddha was teaching in one sentence. It's quite an accomplishment. And that sentence was, awakening beckons us within everything. Awakening beckons us within everything. Or like, or like I like to say, <clears throat> that everything moves towards awakening if we get out of the way, maybe not us, but we get the clinging out of the way, the resistance out of the way. Everything moves towards clinging if the conditions are there, those supportive conditions. 
of a constancy, ability to stay with the experience kindly and supportedly and openly and non-clingingly. If we can have some sense of well-being, a kind of well-being that gives us the strength to open to our suffering. And if we can have Dharma confidence, So the time will come, <clears throat> doesn't have to be today or tomorrow. The time will come if this practice is for real, that you will encounter your suffering. Not just, not just the ordinary sufferings of life, but maybe some of the deepest places of attachment that you have, the deepest places of hurt and fear and anxiety and despair, sadness, grief. If you're prepared through this practice, it's never a mistake to finally meet that suffering. And when, when you do, you won't be meeting it just for yourself. It's not only a personal thing. Inevitably, you're doing it for everyone else as well. Any individual who meets their suffering and holds it and practices with it and finds a way through it and allows something to release, is showing the way for everyone else in this world that it's possible, it can be done. It's worthwhile to do this practice. In this Buddhist tradition, they say it's one of the most noble things you can do with your life. And to know it for yourself so that <clears throat> other people can be inspired or learn from you or or by osmosis, they'll pick it up. If you're around young children, they pick things up osmotically really well. If you don't get to the bottom of your suffering, maybe that's what they pick up. If you're afraid, they pick up fear. If you're hateful, they pick up hate. If you're greedy, they pick up greed. But if you're free, they resonate with that. If you're kind, if you don't have fear, if you're happy, they pick up that. We don't meet our suffering and work with the practices just for ourselves. It's a beautiful thing to do, to do this for all beings. And the suffering of this life that the Buddhist tradition talks about, the dresses, is not only the personal suffering we have, 
the suffering that's being addressed in the deepest areas of practice are sufferings which are existential sufferings. That the people who are conventionally are not suffering and happy will have, do have, if they get, go through the layers of the heart, layers of the mind, to really see what's there. And that we share this suffering. We share the personal sufferings. We share the universal sufferings with all beings everywhere. We're not alone in our suffering. You can feel that way. It's something that we share with humanity. But to share it with a Sangha, to share it with a community of practitioners who are not just suffering, but they have the courage to practice with it, to meet it on a path that's meant in its essence to bring the end of suffering. What a great thing to realize you're, you're in it together. So we're doing something very shared and, and the more fundamental suffering that we have, the existential, we all share. We're not alone in it. And that accompaniment, that support, having a practice for it, having a sense that it's important to, that the way we practice, the way we meet our suffering, our happiness, meet our life as it is, to meet this world with these qualities of awakening itself, qualities of freedom, peace, qualities of non-clinging, To realize these things, to have these things, these practices is such a good fortune that perhaps it will allow you to sit and meditate, to go back and forth in walking meditation with a contentment that you're in the very place, in the very activity that brings together your sincerity, your dedication, the, a powerful, effective practice, something that's shared by a Sangha for that's centuries old, that you're in a good place when you practice, especially on retreat, to be content, to be, in, to be willing, maybe courageously willing to pause all the running around, all the searching, all the protecting and fending off and pushing away, all the entertainment in the mind. Feel your way, feel your way into 
that place where things are quiet and peaceful enough that you can be present for your life in a real way, a deep way. That you can be curious and open and interested. What is here? <clears throat> How do I meet this moment simply, peacefully? How do I allow this movement towards freedom to have space in me to move and to unfold. You don't free yourself. You create the conditions so that the natural movement to release, the fist of the heart will relax. Something will melt, quiet down. This is not a <clears throat> complicated process. It's a process towards greater and greater simplicity with just this moment, just this experience, whatever it might be. And as we settle in and simplify and learn the art of just being present for this moment here as fully as we can, making a room for this moment, making a room for our experience. When the time comes, when the Dharma will know, your heart will know, when it's time for you to begin <clears throat> relaxing the fist softening, letting go, releasing. This process of awakening lives in you. The, the, the path to the end of suffering lives in you. It's intimately, integrally part of who you are. Beckoning, uh, awakening beckons you within everything. May you sit still and feel your way to that place where suffering and the releasing of suffering go hand in hand, come to meet and are operating together. May you be free of your suffering. And if that, that, that doesn't happen, if you practice sincerely, it's almost as good. Thank you for your sincerity. I really I felt it these days. <clears throat> Those of you I've been meeting with one-on-one, -on -one, and it's been really a really a wonderful thing for me to meet you and feel it, your sincerity. Carry on, please. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.